Hi, hello and welcome. This is the Zonecast where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs and academics. And today we have with us on the show, Kerry Liu. He is the founder of Ruby Cloud. Uh, hi, Kerry. How are you? Welcome to the show. Great. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm very interested and curious to learn more about you and also the company. Um, can you tell us about your professional and personal background? Sure. Yeah. So if we go all the way back to, you know, kind of the early days, I was born in Shanghai. Uh, I moved to Vancouver actually when I was about three years old. I spent my whole life in Vancouver up until about 10 years ago. I moved to Toronto. I actually started my life at uh, UBC, did a business degree, and then uh, went over to PricewaterhouseCoopers, where I spent uh, about four years in different roles, uh, mainly working with tech companies, but everything from like audit, like everybody else, to uh, some advisory and consulting roles there. Uh, and then I joined a startup, and uh, my life kind of changed after that. So I was an early employee at a, a tech startup in Vancouver that grew to about 60 plus people, and then we got acquired. Uh, after that, I founded RubaCloud, uh, and I had already moved to Toronto uh, pretty much halfway through the last startup uh, and uh, just stayed here because this is a great city, and, uh, and I loved uh, everything about it from a tech perspective. So can you tell us about uh, RubyCloud and how the idea came about? Yeah, so it's not a single idea. I think what's, what's important is a thesis. Uh, the thesis has always driven this business, and the thesis has been... Uh, two kind of big things one ai machine learning everything kind of big data you know we founded this company five and a half six years ago big data was the big buzzword that became data science that became ai um, no matter what terminology you want to use the first thesis was this new wave of technologies was going to fundamentally change how businesses could make decisions so it wasn't going to be about these rules-based engines anymore or these teams of consultants or these kind of legacy systems. There were going to be intelligent systems that could automate a big part of the decision-making process no matter what business you were in, whether you were in kind of the automotive space, the banking space, the retail space, the insurance space. So that was the first thesis, the big kind of thesis around uh, intelligent kind of automation of decision-making. The second thesis was, well, you can't possibly build a startup applying that to every industry. It's not scalable, it's not practical, so you have to look at what industries you can accomplish and make a disruption in. So for us, we pick the big retail vertical, and not just retail in general, but the top retailers of the world. So the top kind of 1,000 retailers in the world, uh, Deloitte just published today their kind of annual Deloitte uh, kind of 250 report, and it's a good indicator. So 250 retailers around the world control $5 trillion of spending. If you go to the top 1,000 retailers of the world, they end up controlling close to 95% of consumer spending. So we focus on that group, uh, and we focus on using AI to uh, change the decision automation process within big retailers. So how does your solution help retailers make better decisions? Yeah, so I always try to use like a, a, an example, right, a story. So imagine that you owned you know, one uh, single store. So a good example of this is if you own, say, you know, uh, a kind of a boutique grocery store that is, you know, a farmer's market or somewhere in the city, you might have a quarter of your product is fresh produce, a quarter of your product is uh, kind of packaged foods and packaged goods, a quarter might be other fresh food like sandwiches and deli, another quarter might be, say, kind of household products like cleaning supplies and things like that. Well, you uh, as an individual business owner have to decide how much inventory to carry, 
what range of SKUs to carry. So how many different types of, you know, cleaning products or kind of food products do you carry? How often do you reshelve and restock those products? How do you price it compared to Loblaws down the street or, you know, Whole Foods down the street? Uh, and then do you decide to promote certain things at certain times of the day or certain times of the week or whatever it may be? And all of these, from a decision-making perspective, you have to make as a single store owner. So that problem, now imagine that if you are a kind of uh, national retail chain, you've got a thousand stores, you don't have 200 SKUs, you have 250,000 SKUs. You don't have, uh, you know, uh, kind of one or two promotions happening once you have literally tens of thousands of promotions. So right now, these big retailers have really, really archaic systems, rules-based systems, consulting-based systems to decide how much inventory to carry, how much inventory to order, how to price that inventory, how to restock that inventory, how to promote it, where to put it in the store. None of these decisions are are good with legacy systems. They're all terrible uh, kind of you know uh, uses for old school kind of tech systems. They're the perfect use case for AI. They're the perfect use case for an intelligent decision system that can learn about the behavior and change itself. So we basically come in and build uh, a system that you can deploy as a big retailer in a few months that automates pricing, promotion, store level allocation, store level inventory decisions uh, in, in real time for the retailer uh, on a regular basis. So are you building a custom solution for every retailer? No. So we, we have kind of three different layers to our platform. The first layer is a data layer. That is the same no matter who we work with. It's a layer that ingests all of that messy kind of legacy database stuff from uh, the, the messy data from like your Oracle, IBM, Teradata is the, the kind of years upon years of uh, kind of technology debt. We ingest that data into kind of a, a cloud native environment on Google or Microsoft and in our proprietary data model. So that layer is the same for every single retailer. We then have a layer on top of that, which is the kind of machine learning data science layer that we have different uh, essentially modules depending on the type of retailer you are. So we would deploy a different set against the grocer versus a fashion retailer against the home improvement retailer or whatever it may be. Uh, and then we have a final layer on top of that which is more of the very bespoke piece that we do have to do tuning for based on that retailer's individual needs. So I would say 80% of the product is the same for every retailer. That 20% we work closely with the retailer to, uh, to, to make sure it fits their specific needs. So can you tell us about some of the big retail clients you're working with? Sure. I mean, we can't publicly name a lot of them. Uh, if you think about kind of the, the nature of the work we do, we're essentially kind of like a system of record for a lot of their inventory pricing and promotional decisions. So uh, we, we don't get to kind of name the, the retailers. Um, we're working with two of the largest uh, grocers in North America, two of the top kind of uh, 10 largest grocers in North America, three of the lar 10 largest uh, health and beauty retailers in North America, um, a couple of the largest kind of fashion chains. So we, we typically work with, think about your kind of tier one, tier two, uh, kind of multi-billion dollar retailer, your household brand that you probably shop with on a regular basis. Uh, there's a good chance that we're working with one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so this company was founded in 2013. Yeah. And then you have raised about $37 million for, uh, for this particular venture. So the total funding is about 45, uh, and the last round was 37. Oh, okay. Yeah. So fundraising is, is a big, big, big challenge for any new venture. Sure. Um, so can you tell us about your fundraising 
journey and what kind of obstacles you faced? Sure. Fundraising, I think, for any startup CEO should always be kind of front uh, of mind. Uh, you, you have to kind of, because in many ways, fundraising is a reflection of the bullishness of the larger economy on tech, right? When the when the larger economy is extremely bullish on tech from a you know disruption perspective, from an industry perspective, from a job creation perspective, from all of those kind of macro things that matter, it, it tends to lead to a more frothy fundraising environment where venture funds and companies have a lot more money to deploy. Uh, so it is even if you're not raising money, it's important that you keep track of what's happening in the funding markets if you're a startup CEO. Uh, for our specific uh, company, we're a pretty heavy technical shop. So we have everything from kind of uh, computational mathematicians on the data science side that know very, very specialized kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, areas of data science, whether it be machine learning automation or pure research, all the way to very specialized, uh, large kind of DevOps and cloud operations people that are handling hundreds of terabytes of data from, you know, um, very sensitive data sources and moving them to some of the largest infrastructures in the world on Google and Microsoft. So we've always known that we needed to raise venture money to grow a technical team and eventually to raise more venture money to grow a commercialization team to take this to market. So knowing that, we tried to raise as little money as possible in the first four years to kind of prevent dilution, prevent kind of, you know, um, raising too much too early uh, and building as much as we could with very little money. So we had actually only raised about uh, eight million bucks in the first four years of the business. Uh, and then when we were pretty confident that we knew the market was ready, the timing was ready, we could start to commercialize aggressively. That's when we set out to raise a pretty large round, which is when we raised the $37 million round last year. Uh, one of the things that, that we definitely did from the very, very beginning was we didn't even think for a second of just focusing on the Canadian VCs. Uh, we focused on a global view of venture. I think anybody who's raising money in a Canadian environment right now needs to look well beyond Canada because VCs, it's not like selling to a different market, right? Like if you sell to a different market, or like if we were to decide tomorrow we were going to sell to a big Brazilian retailer, there's a lot of things we have to get right. We have to get you know, the language, we have to make sure we have people on the ground that can employ it, all those different things. But when you're talking about raising money, it's a global kind of fundraising market right now. So Asian VCs, UK VCs, Australian VCs, American VCs, they all come to Canada and look for op great opportunities, especially Toronto now that we're a kind of a, an AI hub uh, for the world. So to date, we've raised money from uh, Horizon Ventures, which is a Hong Kong-based VC backed by uh, Lee Ka-shing, one of the richest people in Asia. We've raised money from uh, UK VCs uh, and kind of American corporate VC arms from like Intel and Salesforce. And we also have great Canadian VCs as well, like Inovia, uh, who've been great partners as well. So, Wow. Um, are you able to disclose what valuation you raised no. here? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's confidential. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Um, um, where are your investors based? Are they based in Shanghai? Are they based in US? No. So we've got investors in Hong Kong, London, uh, the Valley, uh, and Toronto. Mm -hmm. And was it difficult to? agree on the valuation of the company with, between you and the investors was that was that something that was co constantly argued upon or was that easily agreed upon that this is the value of the well, I think company? it's yeah I think it's hard to answer that question without putting a, a lens on the stage of the company right mm -hmm. early on 
Uh, I think it's really terrible when VCs on like a seed round try to value a company based off revenue or, yeah. or anything. I think that's it's yeah. it's they're like intentionally I think trying to choke the company out too early. So it's pretty dumb. I think early on in the seed and the A evaluation is purely a function of the team, the market size, the amount of ownership you want to. Uh, have as both the entrepreneur as well as the investor and then on top of that just what you think the subsequent rounds will look like and what amount of funding you're going to need right because if you raise a seed round for a kind of consumer heavy lifting company and you know you're going to eventually need to raise a hundred million dollars somewhere down the road then putting a valuation way too low that early on just completely kills the incentives for everybody involved other than the investors Mm -hmm. so a and seed, I think, is a lot more art in terms of ownership, market, team, etc. Um, the rule of thumb is, you know, between 10 and 25% dilution per round. Um, when you get to the B, and certainly when you get to a series C, which we're not at yet, it's a lot more, I think, metrics driven, uh, a lot more what is the multiple, uh, what is the revenue look like, how are you going to scale, where does a dollar get deployed and kind of get... Uh, you know, surfaced on revenue or product or whatever it may be. Uh, B is still kind of in that cutoff where it might be a little bit too early to be purely metrics driven, but you're starting to get to a point where you have revenue metrics and pretty kind of notable and repeatable business metrics. But certainly by the series C or D, it's a lot about the the kind of multiples on revenue, multiples on earnings, uh, and also depending on your industry, what the comps look like. Like we're fortunate that we play in this kind of space where on the one hand, we have all these big legacy providers that we compete with, like Oracle, SAP, SAS, um, these kind of you know traditional conglomerate technology companies who are in our market. We're they're the incumbents. We're the disruptors. the The markets that we play in there are twenty three, twenty four billion dollars uh, in terms of market size, but we're also in a space where. A lot of newer kind of uh, machine learning heavy, cloud heavy companies are excited to get into. So that's where, you know, the the Salesforces, the Googles, the Microsofts, the Adobe's are excited to get into. And we feel that we have a really interesting kind of value prop for our space. So valuation tends to be some balance between the multiple of what those companies uh, look at and how they're valued versus the traditional companies. But the, I think the key thing is we're in an active market. Right. So we know how to peg our revenue, how to peg our kind of uh, value against that market. And um, we can have a pretty clear conversation with VCs about that. It's a lot harder if you're in this like random world where you don't really have a market. You have a lot of researchers and your AI team and you are trying to value the company based on the number of people you have on the team at this stage. I think it's a really hard thing to do suddenly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it is definitely convenient for investors to value a company based on sales. But then that really puts early stage companies at a disadvantage, especially if they're in a pre-revenue stage, because an investor can say, oh, you're not really worth anything, so I can buy you at a price I like. Yeah, but that's just the wrong investor, though, right? So (laughs) That's what I see on Dragon's Den all the time. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a a TV show, uh, and it's also a show that is very, very focused on consumer-facing products. Mm-hmm. Right there, you, you see a lot of product companies going on. There are things that like the average consumer can can buy or consume a service-based business or something like that. So I don't see too many like enterprise software companies pitching on on Dragon's Den. So it's a completely different ballgame, I would say, when you're in, in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess the the method that you described. I mean, like looking at 
sales as a metric for valuation would work for established companies. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you know some of the <laughs> tactics that they use. I mean, if you came into uh, into pitch me as an angel investor and you just had one single product, like a physical product that you sell through a Shopify store or something, I I wouldn't. I would not put a big value on that company either, right? Like mm. you still have to build a brand, you still have to deliver and scale that physical product. I mean, it's it's a completely different business, like a, a physical consumer products company versus a you know enterprise software as a service uh, company. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any competitors who offer same or similar products and solutions? Yeah, so we're we're in this space that's been, uh, I mean, for as long as retail has been around. Uh, the idea that optimizing store pricing, inventory, these big decisions that you need to do to run a retailer efficiently, that has always been a problem. It's always been a problem and it's always going to be a problem because retail gets more and more complicated. So we have competitors who have been around for a long time. We're that kind of young, uh, kind of disruptive, fast-moving startup that is, I think, causing a lot of angst in the legacy world of the big consulting houses and the, you know, the legacy kind of uh, Oracle SAP type companies where you typically can't solve a problem like this in a few months and not with the machine learning that we can develop or that we have developed um, to get to a level of accuracy that they just can't reach. So we, we definitely have competition. We're the underdog, we're the smaller kind of startup uh, in a very, very large market. But I think eventually the whole market is going to go into this direction. So, mm-hmm. Was it difficult for you to acquire your first customers? I think every customer is difficult in our space to acquire, right? Because we're selling to very big, usually publicly traded retailers uh, where we have to respect their operations, the size of their operations, the size of their decision making. We have to be sensitive to their data needs, their governance needs. We have to be sensitive to all these different variables. So it is a long kind of process to earn the trust of a big retailer and partner with them. And we take that very, very seriously. So I think every deal or partner uh, is is difficult. Um, but at the same time, once we start working with a retailer, we typically work with them you know, ideally forever because we're such a, a, an important partner to them and vice versa. So the, the first batch of clients was hard. The second batch is always easier. Um, and you start to learn some of the patterns and some of the pricing and all those things in a lot more detail. Um, but every customer is, is hard to win in our space. So we're, um, we're always kind of, you know, respectful of that. Mm-hmm. And how do you price your solution? Yeah, so that, that's where we're very, very different. The, the old model is I'm going to sell you a lot of hardware. I'm going to put that hardware in your data center. You're going to buy that hardware from me. You're going to buy a maintenance contract on that hardware. That hardware is supposed to have some software on top of it that I'm going to then sell you custom development services on top of to tune to your specific needs. So it was inherently not software as a service. So we sell this on the principle that we don't want you to buy any hardware. Um, We don't even have hardware. We run the entire stack off of uh, GCP or Microsoft Azure. Um, You buy our software to move that data into the cloud. Um, Obviously, you know, we do it in a way that's very secure and, uh, and, you know, 
abides by all the data governance standards and everything. And then we sell based off of licensing software as a service model. So every month you pay a monthly fee. It's usually in the kind of tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, depending on the size of the retailer. Uh, and then the most important thing here is as we build out and develop more of the product, you get the next iteration the next month. So this whole idea of at the end of the year, your maintenance contract is up, you buy a new maintenance contract, that doesn't matter anymore. Like you would never buy Salesforce that way, mm -hmm. right? You would never buy Slack that way. You would never buy, you know, Google apps or, you know, your G Suite that way. So why would you buy enterprise software for pricing and inventory and promotions that way? It doesn't make sense in today's world. If we make a breakthrough on seasonality for perishable foods, then you should get that update the next month. It should benefit you immediately, not a year from now. And the only way to do that is if you move the data to the cloud and if you do it as a software as a service model. Wow. I guess so because you're not using hardware, you're using cloud, mm -hmm. that could possibly allow you to price yourself more competitively and give huge, huge uh, cost savings to your customers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the old adage of, you know, 10 times better and 10 times cheaper, I think is pretty safe for us to say that we're in that camp. Um, our, 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 the legacy competition is... You hear about these projects, right? You uh, in in like the big enterprise world of, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent on trying to fix this one problem, and we're still not there yet. Like that's that's what we deal with every day. Um, that kind of old world of you know, uh, cost overruns and a, th a one year projects ending up being a three year project, all that kind of stuff. Are are your competitors still using hardware? I think for the most part, yeah. I think that the the reality of the state uh, of the industry is that. Most of these big enterprise applications in big retailers are still on-premise, limited to the hardware that you buy from that retailer or from that vendor. Um, they're not born in the cloud with machine learning baked in and deployed as a service um, on your behalf. So we're still very, very early in deploying this scale and this size of a solution uh, in a kind of software as a service cloud first model. Mm -hmm. That's that's pretty innovative. You're basically taking advantage of the cloud technology, mm -hmm. using that to eliminate the need for hardware, yeah. which means the, the the purchase of hardware, the storage of hardware, the yeah. maintenance of hardware. You're you're pushing that aside, yeah. and you leveraging cloud technology to make it a pure software-driven solution. Yeah, well, why wouldn't we, right? Like, there are three companies in the world right now who have a combined market cap of almost $2 trillion between Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, actually more than $2 trillion, whose number one goal is to turn the on-premise model into a cloud-first model. Mm -hmm. So the amount of money in R&D they have put into infrastructure as a service to enable everybody to deploy faster and more scalable is it would be stupid for us not to leverage that. As a result, we can deploy with any client anywhere in the world and not need to worry about that. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, you also happen to be an investor. Uh, do you, al you also invest in ventures? Yeah, yeah I do so, a bit of angel investing. Yeah, so yeah. tell us about some of the interesting companies that you, that you have invested in. Yeah, I mean, I don't really... Disclose. I'm not one of those angel investors that like puts every investment on LinkedIn. Um, so uh, 
I would say the two areas that I, one is I stay pretty close to home around kind of uh, enterprise software as a service companies. Um, and the other one is I think the food tech space is really cool. So I've done a lot of investments there. Uh, and just that that's how we eat. The whole supply chain around it is a big world that is going to completely change. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's, it's somewhat close to home in that we work with retailers all day long and we see how they have to, you know, uh, grapple with that problem, right? Of like plant-based foods and kind of each category being disrupted one at a time. Uh, so yeah, those are two areas that I, I, I love and I, I will continue to invest in. But I mean, I'm an angel. I write very small checks and um, I think it's just ultimately, I love working with other great founders. Mm-hmm. I think other founders um, share some, like founders share this kind of similar bond where we all understand the pain of, you know, how hard it is to do what we do. So Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nice to have an investor who also has his own venture. So he yeah. knows the, the pains of fundraising and the pains of, starting a new venture yeah but i would say i mean you don't the, the whole i don't want it to seem like i'm this angel investor that spends you know a crap load of my money investing like i think it's really really important for any founder to either advise or invest in other f- startups that they think are you know uh interesting spaces or, or founders that they they love working with because investing five ten fifteen thousand dollars is is ultimately it's a lot of money but it's not you know, it's not life changing money in many cases for, you know, people who've been in the industry for 10, 20 years, but you get to work with other founders and that's more exciting than anything. Right. Mm. So I think every founder at a certain stage should do angel investing. Mm. I think it's one of the best experiences to go through. Um, but how much and how often you do it is completely dependent on the person, I think. So you invest in companies which are also in the AI space, enterprise software as a service yeah, kind of yeah, thing, and then yeah. food tech that you mentioned. Yeah, that's just, I think it's a really cool space that that, that is important to everybody in this world right now. Do they so. have to be selling to like retailers? Or no, what? no, I don't care what space okay, they're in. They yeah. be focusing on any word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's, that's interesting. And, and what you mentioned about working with other founders mm-hmm. uh, by by angel investing in their, in their companies. That's, yeah. a, that's a pretty neat concept. Yeah, I think if you dig deep, most founders I know of in this city do some form of angel investing one way or another. Whether they're writing a $5,000 check or they're writing a $500,000 check, um, I think every founder uh, is involved somehow in that world. So at least when you get to a certain stage, right? By the time you're like at a Series B or or A or C business, then, then you're in that position where you're, always looking at kind of like, well, I want to also be an investor too. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. Um, so you you definitely have experience living in different cities. You were born in Shanghai mm-hmm. and then you moved to Vancouver mm-hmm. and then now you're in Toronto. So I guess, I guess most of your time was spent in Toronto and Vancouver. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us about your experience in, in those two cities and which one do you like more yeah i i like toronto i toronto is home i i i love it here because i i feel like vancouver always has a big problem that they won't admit (laughs) which is there's a gravitational pull that is kind of naturally difficult to fight off if you're in vancouver you are being your talent is naturally being pulled away from not just the valley but also from seattle also from toronto 
and also from everywhere else people are pulling talent from, right? LA, et cetera. So, and so you're kind of supply it's constantly being applied pressure against from cities that have way more capital and way more businesses way more tech companies than you ever will and at the same time your kind of supply of new people coming into the market from ubc sfu university of victoria and all the other colleges is not even close to the volume of people that are graduating in ontario from toronto waterloo queens you know the uh, kind of Western, like York, all these schools, Ryerson. So you don't have, you have a tenth of the people graduating and those who do graduate naturally get pulled by four or five cities. So I just think that Vancouver will will always have a tough time becoming a standalone tech hub the way that Toronto is becoming. But like, I, I think people might, this, this brain migration that you're talking about, is it really limited to Vancouver? I think it's... Don't you see that happening in different places and cities where either the person wants to move mm-hmm. out yeah. or whether he gets an opportunity which requires him to move out? Sure, yes. Yeah. Is it really limited to Vancouver? It, it isn't, but when you're a city that's only a million and a half people and, you don't, and you're not the kind of head office of some of the biggest tech companies in the world for Canada, like the Canadian head office, if you're not, you know... Uh, if you're not creating the number of startups that Toronto is creating, um, then you just naturally have fewer reasons to keep people. Mm. So just the volume of startups in Toronto, the volume of big tech companies who have offices here, I mean, name your company, they have big presence here, Salesforce, in, you know, Intel, Google, Microsoft, like there, there isn't one that doesn't. Mm. And then you have the natural fact that the banks, the retailers, the CPGs, the insurance companies are all based out of here. In a world where data is now a huge kind of asset and manipulating and playing with data and analytics around that is a big, big part of any organization, those jobs are only going to grow more and more. If you look at kind of the need for cybersecurity jobs, those are going to grow more and more within banks, with insurance companies, within retailers. So just the amount of opportunity in a city like Toronto with 6 million people and all of that infrastructure, all of that big business, all of the startups versus Vancouver with a quarter of the people, Toronto is going to be affected so much less than mm. Vancouver will. So yeah, we're still going to lose people to you know companies all the time, but we might lose them to a big tech company and they might just stay in Toronto. So then the city still gets the benefit, right? So this person quits and they go join, I don't know, Amazon or Salesforce for three, four years and they come back and they start a company, right? So people, I think, stay in Toronto more. They might move around, but there's less of a desire to kind of leave the city and go to a different city altogether. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess you do have a point. Toronto is definitely a much bigger. I think in Canada, it is the biggest business hub, yeah. um, and it's also close to Waterloo, and then yeah. it has a number of suburbs surrounding it. Um, so and it does have a lot of either headquarters or Canadian regional headquarters for a mm-hmm. lot of the companies. So there's definitely more opportunity and talent retention yeah. here. Uh, definitely seems to be the case um so you mentioned that when you when you um, provide a solution for a new customer 80 percent is the standard product mm-hmm. and 22 percent is is you tailor uh, perhaps i guess you add new features or you tailor the solution yeah. so can you tell us about that process what 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 uh, what do you what do you add or do in that 20 percent to 
to uh, to help them. Yeah, I think what's uh, what's important is to like kind of look, take a step back, and look at how. I think there's this belief right now that AI is this this kind of out of the box thing. Um, the reality is that's not even close to the the truth, right? AI is a discipline. It's a set of disciplines around, you know, data ingestion, around data kind of stability, around uh, kind of the actual research for a specific type of machine learning, all the way to the feature engineering level, which is you're trying to essentially tune the models for the long tail of use cases. So in the retail world, when we encounter a new thing that we've never encountered before, we'll do feature engineering against that problem to solve that problem for what would be triggered in that case by that one particular retailer. But we still do it in a way that is repeatable for every single retailer. So for example, if we come up with a way to look at seasonality of certain types of products better because one particular retailer needed that, then that retailer for us will be the trigger to invest in that from a feature engineering research perspective. Once we've solved that problem, we'll then ingest it into every other retailer and make sure they get that benefit as well. So we use kind of the the, the new problems that come up in retail as a trigger to do that kind of final 20% of research and development that will eventually make its way back into the product anyways. Mm-hmm. But to, to us, AI is this loop. It's not this kind of, you build this, you know, decision brain and you set it loose and it learns on its own it needs feature engineering it needs kind of constant kind of uh, tuning against new problem sets it needs to be programmed in a way that it can ultimately apply reinforcement learning and and uh, get more intelligent in in that action but it's it's not a completely hands-off system it shouldn't be in the enterprise at least Mm -hmm. so which which are the most disruptive uh, startups or ventures and in the AI space right now besides uh, Ruby Cloud, of course. So we we see a lot of companies, to be honest, right now it's starting to get really hard to distinguish mm-hmm. because I, I kind of see a few different camps, right? You've got companies like Ruby Cloud that are, AI is the means to an end. It's a means towards addressing a multi-billion dollar business problem that to be honest, if AI wasn't the solution, something else would have to be the solution. So there's those types of companies where AI is essentially just that the reason that you can solve the problem faster, more effectively, more intelligently. Um, there's a lot of cool companies in our space um, you know, that, that are doing that. Interesting ones like Nudge and so Steve Woods of Eloqua uh, and uh, kind of one of the founders of Eloqua started Nudge to do this around kind of predictive sales uh, and CRM. Um, so there's big problem sets out there. Another one uh, is kind of a uh, interesting one like um, say ClearPath Robotics is using AI for kind of automation in the manufacturing space. So I, I put the first bucket of companies like RubaCloud where you're solving a real problem with a real industry and AI is just the ingredient to solve that problem. The second bucket is a lot of co- companies just purely researching things. I think that's fine. Um, they've got a, a general area, a general industry, and they're just applying a lot of researchers against those problems. They're not taking things into production. They're not building software. They're not ultimately disrupting a market. I think they're just trying to disrupt the underlying research in that space. 
Uh, and those are great. Hopefully, a bunch of those eventually become kind of commercially available companies. And then you've got a third bucket of companies that have just slapped the .ai back, you know, into their domain and called themselves AI companies. And they're really just analytics companies or visualization businesses or consulting businesses that wouldn't even know where to start in the AI space. I think those companies eventually, you know, eventually the market takes care of that, right? So they're not going to sell. They're not going to do anything uh, disruptive. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. Well, Kiri, it has been very nice uh, speaking with you and learning about uh, Ruby Cloud. Thank you so much for taking the time. Perfect. Thanks for uh, coming down and spending time with us. Yeah. And your website is rubycloud.com. Cloud yes. with a K. Yes. Perfect. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode. And uh, if you want to learn more about Ruby Cloud, you can visit their website, rubycloud.com. And thank you so much for listening to Zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes.